Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we've got a really great interview to share with you today. This is with Dr. Christine Figner. Uh, so uh, as a way of introduction, Dr. Christine Figner is a marine conservation biologist and science communicator who has been really successful on social media, sometimes known as the sea turtle straw lady. Uh, she has raised global awareness of the issue of ocean plastic pollution and has been studying sea turtles for over 15 years. You might have seen her in a viral video moment where she was, uh, she and her research team were removing a plastic straw that was lodged in a sea turtle's nose, and of course that video uh, triggered a lot of thought about what is uh, what is the effect of say single use plastic such as plastic straws in uh, on marine life. Christine today is a, is a science communicator who uh, speaks uh, at events about her sea turtle conservation work, fighting plastic pollution, and empowering women in science. In 2018, Time Magazine honored her outreach and advocacy efforts by naming her a next-generation leader. As director of science and education for the U.S.-based Footprint Foundation, she travels the globe educating people about the effects of plastic pollution on our environment and human health and inspiring people to reduce their use of plastic. She's also the co-founder and scientific lead of a community-centered grassroots conservation organization in Costa Rica that is researching and protecting sea turtles. Christine's overall goal is to reach as many people as possible with her message to eliminate plastic from our environment, save sea turtles from extinction, empower women in science, and make our planet safer and healthier for wildlife and people alike. So this is just a really fun chat. Uh, let's go ahead and dive into it. Let's get into some gnarly uh, facts and stories about sea turtles. We have all sea turtle questions for you here today. Yay. Though, though we may ask you whale stuff, too, because you were, you were also originally interested in cetaceans, right? Yeah, somebody did the, uh, the homework on me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I became a marine biologist because I love humpback whales. Oh, did you happen to read the story of uh, supposedly a man off the coast of Provincetown who was a lobster diver reported that he was temporarily swallowed by a humpback whale? Do you believe it's true? really creepy and funny is that allegedly it's the same guy that like a few years ago survived an airplane crash in Costa Rica, one of the few survivors. Wow. Talking about having more than one life. Yeah. Well, wait, so do you have any reason to be skeptical of the story or do you think it's plausible that he did go into the humpback whale's mouth and then was spit out? I think that's possible. I don't think he was swallowed. I just think, I mean, not swallowed all the way, right? So I mm -hmm. think probably, I mean, if you've ever seen humpback whales feeding, right? So they kind of have those bubble curtains and then they just like go in and just like open their mouth wide just to like, you know, swallow the largest quantity possible. And if you happen to just be there, I'm sure the whale was like, oh my God, what's that in my mouth? And just like, <laughs> <laughs> wrong place, wrong time, huh? Yeah. Well, we just, we just jumped right into it. Maybe we should back up and, uh, and actually get officially started. Um, so one place that we do like to start here is, uh, Christine, can you just introduce yourself to the audience, stating your name, your title, as well as any key affiliations or employers, organizations that you want right up there at the top with your ID? Yeah, my name is Christine Figener. I am by trade a marine biologist, and I have been working on the interface between conservation and applied science for about yeah, more than 15 years now, mainly with sea turtles, but also with cetaceans, so whales and dolphins. And right now I am running a small community-based grassroots organization in Costa Rica that is protecting sea turtles. And I'm also the director of science and education for the U.S.-based Footprint Foundation, which is well, trying to convince people to reduce their use of plastics. So that's pretty much me in a nutshell, I guess. So you mentioned that you were originally interested in cetaceans before you got uh, into sea turtles as a research area. What, how, did you, uh, how did you make that leap? And I guess you can back all the way up to cetaceans if you want. Yeah, I mean, I, in my teens, you know, where usually people are obsessing about boy bands, I guess. I'm not going to say which one was uh, popular during my times because that would reveal my age, I guess. Um, <laughs> but instead of that, I was actually collecting, you know, 
posters and articles and other stuff about whales and dolphins. And I particularly loved humpback whales. So I, I play music, I play the guitar and I sing. And I always thought, you know, it would be so cool to study the songs of humpback whales. You know, it's a kind of a cultural thing and it would have combined a lot of my interests into like this one thing. But then I happened to have the chance to go to Costa Rica on a sea turtle into a sea turtle project when I did my master's into a leatherback project, very specific. And I totally fell in love with that type of work because it's super hands-on. I don't think there's that many, you know, jobs as a wildlife biologist where you can be with such a large animal, you know, for extended times in the natural environment without having to, you know, tranquilize them or restrain them even in any shape or form. And it was so impressive, just like the environment, right? So you're on these tropical beaches, you have this incredible, you know, biodiversity all around you. You have the jungle right next to you on one side and you have, you know, the vast ocean on the other. You have this incredible night sky over your head. And then you just, you know, walk, you know, kilometers and hours without end on the beach just to find this like one track that leads up to the berm, up to the vegetation, and you hope that the turtle is still there. And then once you see the turtle, it's just, you know, they're real-life dinosaurs, if you think about it, right? They have been around for a hundred, well, not hundreds, but definitely more than hundred million years, uh, especially leatherbacks, which are like the oldest lineage of sea turtles that we still have. And when you just sit next to them, they're massive. I mean, they're absolutely gigantic. And you can see them, you know, using their rear flippers, just like hands, digging their egg chambers, squeezing out the eggs, creating a new generation. And yeah, I totally, I was totally in awe. And I just thought, okay, this is like the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. And that is just how I fell in love and just stayed with it. Wow. You know, now speaking of, uh, of just how long sea turtles have been around, um, well, what is it about the sea turtle that has enabled it to survive while so many other marine reptiles have gone extinct? Like, what, is, what do you think is the winning design of the sea turtle? You know, that's, that's a really good question. And I don't think we have like a definite answer. I think, in, especially in evolutionary biology, we always make very many intelligent guesses. But of course, um, at one point, there were a lot more sea turtle species than there are nowadays. Uh, so we are down to seven, seven extant species. And if you look at the seven species right now, it's really interesting because they all have similar ecologies to a certain degree because, you know, you can find them in usually warmer waters because they're active therms. So that means they cannot regulate their own body temperature. So that means they have to get an outer source to really, you know, get their metabolism going. So that means you find them in tropical waters, subtropical waters, and they're all coming onto the beach to nest. But then if you look at their diet, and I think that is really the key is, you know, how they diversified is really over the over the axis of the diet. So we have very specialized species such as the hawksbill or the leatherback. So the hawksbill feeds mainly on sponges. The leatherback feeds mainly on jellyfish. I mean, that's another really cool thing. If you think about how large that animal is, that feeds on an animal that's just barely, you know, anything other than water. Um, then we have green turtles that are, as adults at least, mainly herbivorous. So they're very different in their, you know, trophic niche, as we would say, as scientists. So that means, you know, they have very different diet. And that is probably the, the secret to their, you know, coexistence, that they're not competing with each other for resources. And the other thing is sea turtles are incredible resilience. So I've never met um, animals that are so resilient. I mean, I've seen so many turtles that have suffered incredible injuries, literally, you know, amputations of limbs or really crazy damage to their to their shell. And they're still able to survive and not just survive, but, you know, still kind of go with their biological program, go and mate, come up to the beach and lay their eggs, even though they might have literally no rear flippers anymore or massive slashes in their carapace. I mean, I've seen really, really sad things, but it also makes me think, wow, yeah, I mean, you're really resilient. So that means things might not face you as much as others. And they're also pretty widespread, right? So that means we have really sea turtles in almost all tropical waters. So um, even if maybe one population might go extinct, they are probably able to repopulate 
you know, into in from that population into other areas again. And that might have been, you know, the secret of why they were able to survive so long, because they were probably able to, first of all, migrate into into other places if if things became inhabitable or were able to, you know, diversify their diets uh, over the course of, of millions of years. And it seems also be the buddy plan that they have seems to be really successful, right? So I don't know if everybody knows that, but turtles, not just sea turtles, um, their shell is actually made from their rib cage that merged together. So the, the single ribs just kind of, you know, became bony and just like, yeah, became the shell. So the shell is actually the, the, the vertebra and the ribs. And everything else, like your shoulder blades and everything moved inside. So they have created this incredible armor. I mean, uh, in German, if you translate like turtle, it actually means shielded toad because they have this like shield and protection, right? Um, and that means, of course, that once sea turtles have reached a certain body size, there's not that many natural predators that are actually able to eat a turtle, right? So right now, I mean we're taking like humans aside at this point, but if you're talking about natural predators, it's really only about, you know, the, the animals have really strong mandibles that can crack that shell. So that's the tiger shark, it's the jaguars, and it's crocodiles that might be able to really eat an entire turtle. I mean, they might be able otherwise to take like a bite out of flipper, but that's not the delicious part with all the fat and all the, all the meat that's all inside of the shell, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's still some mystery about the sort of stepwise evolutionary process that led to the turtle having a shell, isn't there? Because I think I was reading that um, it's sort of hypothesized that maybe a middle stage was first you had some kind of lizard-like creature that had a wide, large rib cage, and then maybe in between it had a body plan that was sort of like you would see with models of the Ankylosaurus, where there were sort of plates all over the back and then over time those plates fused is that sort of in the right direction yeah i mean i'm not an expert on like you know the paleontology i think or like the yeah. actual um evolution of, of like the body plan but what's interesting if you just look back for example even just look at the leatherback so we have seven species as i said and six of them all belong to the hard shell turtles um so it's kind of the same group and then we have the leatherback turtles which are their own lineage and leatherbacks actually look a lot more like the, you know, the, the older lineages as well, because they have a reduced carapace. So leatherbacks are pretty much named because they have a soft shell. So they do not have those bony plates. Um, if you look at, at a skeleton of a leatherback, you will not exactly see what I just said, where the ribs have grown together. So it's, it's more like cartilage um, um, in, in parts of it. It's, it's just like a reduced shell. And Archelon, for example, which is one of the... Um, you know, first sea turtles that that we've known of from the fossil finds looks a lot like leatherbacks. So they have, you know, they have some type of shell, but it's more a reduced shell. And also, I think in other fossil finds, you can see that certain sea turtles, for example, had a like a stronger um, plastron, which is like the 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 belly part of the shell, versus you know, um, a, like kind of a, a reinforced carapace, which is the upper part of the shell, and vice versa. So it might have been like different pressures, for example, of where your natural predators came from. So if you were mainly, you know, attacked from the bottom, maybe it was, you know, advantageous to have, you know, a kind of reinforced um, shield on your belly rather than on your back or vice versa. So mm. we don't know, but that's, like I said, that's the intelligent guesses that you have, may, have to make about evolution and why certain things developed or weren't successful in the end. Excellent. So I'm I'm now going to ask basically three questions at the same time, but they're very they're very simple. <laughs> so then they all kind of flow together. So um, how many of the seven extant sea turtle species have you observed in the wild? Which ones do you work with the most, and do you have a favorite? So from the seven, I have seen in the wild six. I'm missing the flatback turtle. So we have two species which are considered endemic, which means. They're only found in a very specific, very limited ge geographic range, which is, first of all, the Kemp's Ridley turtle, which can be mainly found or solely found in the Gulf of Mexico. And then there's the flatback turtle, which is pretty much found in the waters around northern Australia or between Papua, Papua New Guinea and, and, and Australia. They, but they nest mainly on the north shore of Australia. So I haven't seen that one yet. That is really... Um, my last one that I'm missing. 
Uh, I do work mainly with the species that we have in Costa Rica, where I'm based. So uh, the species I started with is the leatherback turtle, but we're also getting, you know, a lower number of green turtles nesting uh, in the Caribbean as well as on the leatherback beaches I've worked on in the Pacific. And then for my PhD, I really extensively studied olive ridleys, which is one of the smaller species. And then right now, since last year, I just initiated a larger hawksbill project, which is also the same beach where the leatherbacks are nesting. So always got some, but now we're really focusing on, you know, monitoring the hawksbill population, which is not nesting exactly at the same time than the leatherbacks. And well, my favorite one, hands down leatherbacks. I mean, I hate to say it and everybody that disagrees with me, they're just wrong. Um, <laughs> just because leather bags are just incredible. I mean, they really, they, 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 they just constituted so many, or like they have so many superlatives about them. I mean, they are the species that are distributed the widest. So we're still talking about an ectotherm animal, right? An animal that is in theory, not able to regulate their body temperature, but you will find or you can find leatherbacks in waters that are substantially colder than what the perfect temperature would be for them, right? So our populations in Costa Rica, depending which side of the coast you're on, they feed either in front of Nova Scotia, in Canada, Wales, England, uh, also in the North Sea. So recently there was actually stranding in, in Denmark. Um, and then the ones that have uh, nesting on the Pacific side, they are usually going down to Peru, which are also pretty cold waters. And how they can do it is, you know, they have really found a way of, first of all, maintaining their body temperature, the core temperature steady. So they have this like incredible fatty layers. It's almost like a winter coat that keeps them warm and insulated. But then, of course, they don't have it on their flippers, but they do have it around the esophagus. So that's really cool. Right. So that means even when they like swallow their prey, which might be colder than their core temperature, it prevents their or body temperature from dropping. <laughs> and then it is, you know, first, of course, it's a large animal. So they have a better surface to volume ratio. It's, it's, it's a term, it's called gigantothermy. Um, you know, that it's just like you don't lose as much heat over your surface just because you're large. And then also because your flippers, of course, are exposed, they're not having this fatty tissue. And in theory, you know, all that blood that circulates, the warm blood goes out, would cool down, go back. But no, they have this countercurrent system where, you know, the warm blood that comes from the body is actually warming up the cold blood that comes back from the flipper without losing the heat, right? So they pretty much just like pass it on to the blood that goes back into the body. And then the last thing that is actually a little bit more recent is that some scientists just discovered that leatherbacks are able to produce a certain amount of body heat through digestion. So they made them swallow temperature pills um, you know, little devices that can literally measure the different temperature while they were going through the digestive tract. And they're like, wow, okay, you're digesting and you're actually producing heat. That's uh, pretty amazing. So, you know, the limitations and what we know about ectotherms and it, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. I mean, leather bags are just, wow, mind blown. <laughs> would, would that last fact mean that it's not actually such a strict dividing line between warm-blooded animals and cold-blooded animals, but more a question of degree? See, this is this is a good question. Some people have argued that leatherbacks might be not as, you know, strictly actotherm as we would have categorized them. But then, of course, where do you draw the line, right? Scientists like to have drawers where you can like stuff things into, and it's just like, okay, you are this, but not that. And I think sometimes, you know, especially when you think about how evolution happens, it's just not that clean cut. Mm -hmm. So in talking about the leatherback, uh, you were mentioning uh, that it has a self-warming throat. When you look inside their mouth, it does really look like a horror show. They have these, uh, <laughs> these spikes. So what's going on with all that? What, what, is, what does that tell us about the, uh, the lifestyle of the leatherback sea turtle? Well, I mean, you just have to think about, right? You are a leatherback turtle. You're swimming underwater and you are trying to eat this very glibbery thing what is a jellyfish but you also don't want to swallow the seawater right so it's not like you're wanting to eat seawater all the time you know so you're taking a bite and you swallow the jellyfish you swallow the seawater but before you or maybe we shouldn't say swallow so you kind of take it into your mouth but before you actually swallow it you want to get rid of the seawater 
And so that means you also do not want to get rid of the jellyfish though, but it's so, you know, slimy and glibbery that there's a good chance it would go out if it wouldn't be for those spines that are covering the entire mouth down all the way down to the esophagus. Actually, other sea turtle species have those spines as well. They're just not so like in the mouth cavity already. So it's usually just like the esophagus that is having those. Um, but yeah, in, in the leatherback, it's right behind the mandibles. It's where it starts. So it looks like one of those alien mouths that, you know, with, that mm -hmm. I think that yeah, pretty typical, I feel, um, in, in science fiction movies. Mm -hmm. But it's really about, and they're all pointing towards the, the stomach. And that means it's really kind of meant to, you know, for the jellyfish to get stuck in it. And um, they are able to extract the water usually through their nostrils. So there's a connection between the mouth cavity and the nose. Um, so they don't even have to open the mouth and then they just collect the jellyfish and then they just swallow it without all the seawater. That's amazing. So what does it mean to specialize in eating jellyfish? Like what, what kind of niche is that? Is that the kind of niche where you're getting more prey and it's easier to get, or is it the other way around? What, what does that mean to you? Hmm. Well, I mean, we don't know of how it started, right? We <laughs> just mm. see what it is right now. Um, but the thing is, so, so leatherbacks feed in areas where there's a high density of, of, of jellyfish. So that means the energy that it takes for them to get to those jellyfish is not as large or not as big. And they're obviously able to still fatten up enough to produce their eggs or have enough energy to, you know, do their large migrations. And it's really funny if you ever get a chance to, to watch some of those videos that were filmed in Nova Scotia, in front of Nova Scotia. It is really, you know, the leatherback just swimming through the water and just like eating one, <laughs> eating another one through like these, you know, large groups of jellyfish. Um, it's just, they have to eat a lot. So it's pretty much, you know, tons probably on um, so many parts of their, of their body weights in, in order to, to, to sustain themselves and even, you know, have more to do all of those things that they need to do to reproduce. But that is probably one of the reasons they're not nesting every year. So females skip usually one or two seasons in between. So they have enough time to fatten up, produce all the follicles, and then make the migration back to, to their nesting beaches. That, uh, that eating behavior kind of reminds me, if you ever saw the episode of The Simpsons where Homer goes to space and he ends up eating the <laughs> potato chips floating in zero G. Yeah. Yes, that is uh, very accurate, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not as crunchy. But definitely, um, yeah. So uh, I guess backing up a little bit to just sort of um, generally about sea turtles, what do you think are the biggest public misconceptions about sea turtles? I don't know if there's as many misconceptions about sea turtles as there's, for example, about dolphins um, or sharks. I think people like sea turtles because they're cute, what I always find very interesting is that people really don't like reptiles in general. So, you know, snakes and crocodiles, people usually associate with evil. They have an evil look. And I always have to laugh because sea turtles are also reptiles. It's just that they seem to be a little bit cuter or considered a little bit cuter than, than other animals. Um, I think a lot of people don't know much about, you know, the ecology of sea turtles, for example, that sea turtles have to breathe air. So they're, you know, having lungs just like us. Um, they're, they're really highly migratory. So it's not like they're, you know, just hanging out in front of the beach and then they're coming back. I think there's just a lot of information that is not known to the general public. I think that's other than misconceptions that I can think of like out of the top of my head. I was um, in, in preparation for you coming on the show here. I was listening to Kara um, uh, uh, Musia's interview with you on So You Want to Be a, a Marine Biologist, uh, a podcast, which is at uh, marinebio.life. And I was fascinated by your descriptions of the uh, Arabata. So I was wondering, could you tell our listeners what the Arabata is and what it's like to witness it and study it? Yeah, so um, from all the sea turtle species, there's only two species that engage in that, what we call the arribada behavior. Uh, arribada is from the Spanish word for arrival, and it is pretty much describing a synchronized mass nesting. So the olive ridley and the camps ridley, the two smallest species, are the ones that do nest in those synchronized mass nestings, which usually happen in, in the case of olive ridleys at least um, about once a month, 
And then depending if which season it is, you have like larger Adibadas or smaller Adibadas, but the really large Adibadas can have up to half a million females. So you just have to envision, uh, I mean, of course, it's not like it's all happening in one night. So it's usually over the course of four to seven days, but it's usually even if in, in Austria now, in Costa Rica, which is our largest Adibada beach, it's about a six kilometer beach but the synchronized mass nesting only happens of about less than a kilometer, right? So you have to envision once the Adibada starts, it is as if somebody blows a whistle and all of a sudden you have all these females that had already been gathering right in front of the shore that are all coming up together and start their nesting program, right? It's like a little computer chip. It all kind of looks the same. So they come up, they start digging, they start laying their eggs, they start camouflaging, they do their little Ridley dance and they leave. And it's just, they crawl over each other. It smells horrendous because they <laughs> dig up old nests that have been decaying. So it is really, really disgusting. They throw sand in your face when you're trying to do something. If you forget your backpack somewhere, there's a good chance that one of the females just gets stuck with her flipper and just like drags it down into the water. It's just insanity for like four or seven nights. Uh, and then it's gone. And you wouldn't even know that this just happened if it wouldn't be for, you know, usually the vultures and dogs that are digging up nests and you see all these, you know, little white pieces, which are all egg pieces on the beach. And it still smells a little bit funny, but <laughs> that is what an Adivada is. It's, it's absolutely impressive. I would say if you ever get a chance to see one, definitely do it. Now, the, the, the rotten eggs or the decayed eggs that are being dug up, now, are those the percentage of eggs that are just always lost uh, generally? Because I understand there's, I've seen it broken down to where like there's a certain percentage of eggs that just never hatch and remain in the ground. And then you get into the survival rates for each stage of the sea turtle. Yeah. Okay. So there is with the Adivada, it's, it's a little bit more complicated. I'd say it that way because you have, so since it's happening every month and a nest usually needs about 45 to 55 days to incubate. So that means if you are one of the very first females that are coming up in Adibada number one, let's say, then this nest that is laid at that day has to actually survive two Adibadas, right? It has to survive all the females that are coming after her. And then in 30 days, it has to survive the next Adibada up until it has incubated enough to hatch. So those nests are not super likely to survive in certain times of the year, especially also because there is, you know, there's a super high density of nests. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's um, yeah, like one square meter has a, a ton of nests, really, way too many. And so that means there is a lot of microbiota on the beach. You kind of like, I always think of a compost because the sand, even in, on Adibara beaches, is not really sand. It's more like soil. Um, and so... You know, the, the bacteria, of course, are affecting, uh, first of all, the supply of oxygen that the eggs are having. And of course, they're also, you know, infecting the eggs and just like, you know, doing damage in, in other ways. And then the other thing is, of course, that um, the heat. So unfortunately, in a lot of the Adibada beaches, we there are areas where we already have a lot of problem with um, high temperatures because of climate change. And so the rising temperatures are pretty much lethal. Um, so that means the incubation temperature is way too high for any egg to survive. So in Austria now, um, during dry season, these like just the, the hatching success of the nests that have survived till the end is only about 15%, I think, which is very, very low, one five. So it's, it's not very good. And then, of course, it's very difficult to quantify of how many eggs or nests from the initially laid ones are actually even making it to that point. And I mean, there's this one thing that is also contributing to it in Austrian, at least there is, um, I think the world only legal egg harvest. So the village is allowed in the first 72 hours of each Adibada to harvest as many nests pretty much as they're able to. Um, they're justifying it with the fact that, hey, those nests would have the lowest chance of survival anyways. So we are just kind of taking them and selling them uh, to the markets uh, where people still want to buy sea turtle eggs. It is a little bit controversial. I don't know if you want to go into that, but that is happening as well. So that means it, of course, if you would collect data on it, it doesn't, it, 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 it is totally um, 
yeah, it, it's going it because you don't know, you know, what would be if they would leave those nests in the sand. Now, in Costa Rica, aside from the dogs that you mentioned, uh, what what other mammals are, are getting in on the, the feast here? Yeah, so in Austria now, since it's pretty developed, it's really the dogs, the vultures, mammals, mm, raccoons, quatimundis, okay. which are the raccoon family, uh, more than anything. But we do have also an Aribada nesting beach, which is in a national park in Santa Rosa. And they actually have jaguars oh, on wow. that beach. Wow. And the Aribada there is, and it, just because also, I mean, just because you have the synchronized mass nesting, that doesn't mean all of your olive ridley turtles are also engaging in that nesting behavior. There's some plasticity and some females nest solitarily, just like any other sea turtle species as well. So that means most beaches have olive ridley nesting year round and almost every single night you have like one or two turtles. And so that olive ridley population is sustaining a pretty large jaguar population in, in, in Nancit in Santa Rosa National Park. Um, because, you know, they can just, Literally patrol just like we do the waterline up and down. And when there's <laughs> turtle coming out, they're not super fast on land and the jaguar just grass them, drags them up to the vegetation. And then as you know, depends if they have babies or not, but it takes about two to three days until that turtle is gone. And then they start hunting again. Hmm. So I, all kinds of questions are running through my mind about this. <laughs> so uh, first of all, I, I apologize if uh, you alluded to the answers to either of these already. One is, do we have any idea what the cue is that triggers all of the, the turtles to come up onto the beach? Because you said they, they gather offshore and then at some point they all just start coming in waves. Do, you, do we know why that happens or what causes it? So, I mean, the why there is some hypotheses. Uh, one mm-hmm. of them is a predator prevention strategy so that you pretty much just as when you're nesting, you're trying to overwhelm any potential predator. Uh, and then when the babies are hatching, since they're all hatching at the exact same time, right? So you have to think about half a million nests, or even if it's just a few hundred thousand nests hatching at the same time, that means there's million of, millions of babies that just, you know, scramble to make their way to, to the ocean. So again, you know, if you're a predator, you can eat one or two or three uh, or even more, but it's not going to be all of them. So it's, it's a pretty, pretty good predator um, prevention strategy. So that's the why, possibly. The how, that is actually a question that we have answered to a certain degree. Um, so we know that it has something to do with the lunar cycle. So that is pretty much um, solid. We know that for decades already. In, it depends a little bit on the uh, synchronized mass nesting beaches. So we have the, yeah, the majority of the beaches are actually in Central America. So Mexico has a really large one. Costa Rica has a large one. And they're like smaller ones. In, in, in Panama and in, um, in Nicaragua as well. And it depends a little bit of which beach we're talking about of what the lunar cycle is. For Austinal, it is usually the week before new moon. So that means mm-hmm. that is a pretty good indicator that I would say probably 90% of the time uh, is giving you a good idea of when this Aribada is going to happen. Whereas in Escobilla, I think it also happens sometimes like a week before full moon. So, um, yeah, I mean, exceptions always exist in Australia as well, but usually the indicator is new moon. And then what we don't know, though, is so you can see already, you know, let's say it's like about a week before new moon and you see already in the waves, you know, thousands of of turtles just swimming, the heads are bobbing up and you're just like, okay, okay, it's going to be happening every every moment now. Mm -hmm. What we don't know is what is the actual whistle that I've talked about? You know, what is it really that says, it is now and not tomorrow and not yesterday, but exactly now. And that we don't know. So there have been, you know, kind of hypotheses such as maybe um, the females are having some type of pheromone that they're releasing. And if it reaches a certain concentration that might be triggering it, but we don't really know. We really don't know. The other thing I was wondering was, um, do we have any indication whether the incredible density of the nesting is, is, is that totally natural? Or I, when I see something like that, I would kind of wonder, is that something that could be caused by, I don't know, changes that are going on, like anything that humans do would drive that sort of uh, incredible density? Do, do we know anything about that? Yeah, well, it's not that we have like solid data. Um, so I would say probably not human cost. Uh, what I would say, though, is that we, 
I'm really curious as scientists to study the evolution and the progression of Arivada nesting beaches because Ostrinal actually has a village for more than 130 years. So that means there's really good historical data of, you know, when they started to have an actual synchronized mass nesting because it's not that they always had one, you know, so it started at some point um, and it's still there. But, and that's more or less my personal hypothesis, is that I really think Adibada beaches are, are kind of getting going extinct at one point if you would let them take the natural course because it is a solid, it's a serious overuse of the beach, right? You have so much nest and you can see from the studies at Austrianal as well, like the hatching success just over 20, 30 years, just like is consistently decreasing. And if you would just let the beach do what it would usually do, or like the turtles do what they usually do, the hatching success rate would probably be zero at one point. So there would be no next generation. But I mean, I have the suspicion, it's really hard to prove that the, you know, the egg harvest is probably artificially keeping that beach alive, you know, because it is raising the hatching mm. success to at least a level there is still babies, but it's very low. So that actually might be detrimental to the population later on because maybe they would have already looked for another beach right at this point. What makes me think that is, is that we have two new beaches now that were in Aribada beaches before that now in the past, I would say six or seven years have started to have synchronized mass nestings and they are getting more and more. So in the beginning, it was like one per year and then it was like three. And I think the last one was like almost eight synchronized mass nestings at one of them, which is and it's getting bigger and bigger as well. So I think there is, you know, there is a natural life cycle to an Adibada, which, which logically it makes sense, right? If you, if you, yeah, overuse something, then at one point there is nothing more left, like when you overuse the soil for plants or else. And so you have to look for something else. So yeah, it will be really interesting to kind of study that, you know, how new synchronized mass nesting beaches are developing how long they really stay like that and until the turtles move on somewhere else. And also what triggers it, right? Because if it would be really some kind of mechanism that is just going over the next generation, that would be, I mean, Olive Ridley's reach sexual maturity with about 15 to 25 years. So that's a lot like feedback cycle, you know, to, if you think about it. So maybe it's something else. So uh, can you explain how temperature plays a role in the development of sea turtle eggs? And then, and then how does climate change impact this process? Yeah, so temperature in the life of sea turtles is super important, as we already talked about it. You know, they needed to warm up their body. But the other cool thing is that the sex of sea turtles is determined by the incubation temperature. So that means they do not have sex chromosomes as we humans have, for example. So, you know, usually it's XX and you become female biologically or it's XY and you're male biologically. And in sea turtles, it's actually the second third of the incubation time that where higher temperatures are leading to more females gradually, of course. It's not like a switch and it's all females or all males and cooler temperatures are leading to more males. So in English, at least they have this, you know, hot chicks and cool dudes. And if, if you want to remember how that is, uh, interestingly though, it is not the same in all turtles. So in sea turtles, it's exactly that, but there's other turtle species, freshwater turtles and tortoises that actually sometimes have two peaks. So it's like, you know, kind of um, middle temperature uh, um, produces more males and like really cool and really hot temperatures lead to females. There's all kinds of variation within that group of turtles. But yeah, in sea turtles, it is that. And that, of course, means nowadays where we are having rising temperatures because of climate change in a lot of places, we are overproducing females. So there's beaches where we have pretty much almost 100% females that we're producing. So there's some stats. It really depends on which region you're looking at and what species but um, that is like, you know, one male to nine females uh, or even worse, worst case scenarios than that, which might not be a problem right now, because like I said, it takes a while till they reach sexual maturity. But once they've reached sexual maturity and if population sizes are already small, there might be just not enough males around to fertilize the females and the eggs. So that is really concerning um, in, in, in that sense. And 
some of the you know conservation measures that we have as for example that we're shading our nests in order to you know artificially uh, increase the amount of males that we're producing just to counteract a little bit those those impacts that climate change um yeah is causing um, I, I had a question. I want to come back to something you said earlier about the resiliency of, of sea turtles. Uh, and you mentioned, mentioned uh, like missing flippers and injuries that um, that they have survived. I was thinking about this recently because I, I, I got to snorkel in um, uh, in Maui and, uh, among some green sea turtles and I uh, got to observe them there. And there was one in particular, and I know it was, I, I kept seeing it because it had a, a number a tagged on its shell and it was missing a front flipper. And every time I would see it, I would, I would marvel at it because I, and then I would ask questions in my, my head. I would, I was wondering like, okay, is this a, a turtle I mean, that has, that has been injured and then has been re-released? Or is this just how resilient they are that it could sustain an injury like this, survive? And, you know, I, I mean, how does, I guess I just have questions about just, just how they manage that. It seems like, like I know if I lost a limb in the ocean, I would just be dead, uh, how does a sea turtle pull it off? Yeah, so I think they have incredible healing powers. So just like what I've seen, for example, I remember one particular leatherback that came with absolutely horrible cuts from, um, she must have gotten somehow entangled in fisher nets. Luckily, she was freed maybe by the fishermen themselves, but it was just a nasty cut all across like the soft part of her shoulders. It was bleeding, it was infected. She was really smelly as well. It was pretty disgusting. And um, so sea turtles don't nest just once per season. So they usually nest, you know, in, in the case of leatherbacks, on average about five to seven times and have very distinct re-nesting in, uh, intervals. So I know in leatherbacks, it's about 10 days. So that means I knew already, okay, you know, she will come back hopefully. And so, you know, the next time she came back, I kind of had some antibiotic uh, ointment that I was, you know, trying and had like an antibiotic pill that I just broke open and tried to like clean it a little bit. Um, but the interesting thing was really within the 10 days that she came back, the wound already had pretty much closed. I mean, it wow. was just like, you know, pretty deep and you could see, you know, it was like through the fat layer and you could see things that I, I, I think you're not supposed to be seeing. Um, yeah. And it, it is just so impressive of how quickly in 10 days, you know, the whole thing had already pretty much closed and yeah, she had an ugly scar but she's definitely able to, to live or in the other, like another example is that I saw a female that came up onto the beach. I, so I caught her in the process of just walking up on the beach and she was dragging something behind her and, you know, it looked like fishing net, but I wasn't sure. So I kind of went closer, switched on my light. And what I saw was that, yes, it was fishing net, but she also pretty much dragged her dead leg that yeah. was literally just hanging on, on like one ligament totally blown up and only, I mean, the whole net, like the whole fishing, I had already cut through the entire bone um, and she was pulling, you know, this dead leg on that ligament and this like huge bulk of fishing line behind her. And she was still nesting. I mean, I mean, this is just mind blowing, right? If you think about it, it's just like, okay, she's probably in pain. Uh, she is in the process of losing an entire flipper but this urge to come onto the beach to still reproduce is so big. And I, I'm pretty sure that she survived, quite honestly, because, I mean, where it was cut, it had already closed. So I just cut off the fishing gear. Um, and then, you know, I, I could tell that she kind of flinched when I was trying to touch the one ligament. So what I did is because I didn't have anything, you know, I didn't want to cut through it. So I just took like one little piece of fishing line and just like pretty much did a tourniquet, just like, you know, try to bind it off from all but supply and how it would just fall off eventually. But, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You're> like, uh. <laughs> it gets gory. Yeah. One of the things I saw when we were coming in here, I know, uh, you've talked before about the, uh, the incident with the straw and the turtle's nose, but I, one of the ones I saw was a, uh, a video you had uploaded uh, where you were trying to remove a fishing net from a turtle's neck and that it had cut in all around the neck. I think, was it a leatherback or? Um, that was, or was an it? olive ridley. So one was, okay. of the smaller species as well. Yeah, uh -huh. it was exactly in front of us too now. So the one of those synchronized mass nesting beaches. And yeah, that was a very typical, I mean, you know, I don't always have the chance to film everything that we see because, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes for me, it's more important to actually 
you know, release them and not thinking about if I can actually film it. Um, but yeah, that's a very typical side, unfortunately. I mean, this one was a little bit worse because it was around her neck. So a lot of times it's, you know, it, it's the flippers. Um, but yeah, I mean, usually what you, all you can do is like, you know, relieve what she has and then just hope that the wounds will pretty much heal themselves, which usually they do. Um, because it's even not that easy to kill a turtle. So we had another case where I was called in um, and there was a turtle on the beach that had been, well, we don't know what came first, but dogs were around her, had pretty much attacked her, had eaten into her body cavity. So from, you know, when you have the head and the shell, so like the soft part is the shoulder part. And so the dogs had just taken chunks out of it. She was in a really bad shape, like way worse than, yeah, I, I did not think, okay, I can just throw her in the water and she's going to be fine. So I contacted a vet that is close by. But of course, the veterinarians are usually not specialized in reptiles. So reptiles are very specific, which um, even when we talked about, you know, like in the aftermath of a sea turtle straw video, it's like, why didn't you take it to a vet? Why didn't you like anesthetize the turtles? It is actually not that easy and pretty dangerous to anesthetize a reptile because the ectotherm and like how the metabolism works more times than not, you might actually end up killing them. So, you know, um, you have to really find a vet that knows how to dose everything to not kill them. And most of the times they would also opt to not do it and rather do whatever they need to do um, without uh, yeah, tranquilizing or anesthetizing the animal just because it is so dangerous. And then of course, you know, you go to the vets that is specialized for cats and dogs and you like come like, hey, I have this sea turtle. And he was like, yeah, that is like, oh God, uh, she needs to be euthanized. And then it was really interesting because we had to look up in the internet how to euthanize a turtle. And it is really, I mean, um, first of all, it's, it's, it, you can use a toxin that we didn't have at hand. So we had to find pretty much like other ways of how we could, you know, humanely euthanize that turtle. Because I had seen it already when poachers, um, you know, try to to take the meat of turtles uh, or the eggs that are still in, in in inside of the the oviducts. They a lot of times don't even bother killing the turtle, so they hack off the flippers, and then they kind of cut uh, the, out the plastron, you know, the, the the belly part, and just open the turtle. And that turtle is fully conscious and alive. And I have seen turtles that had literally no organs left anymore besides the lung and the heart, um, because the meat was taken, the the eggs were taken, and the heart was still beating. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, it's, it's, it's really, really sad and really impacting to see that. So we had this turtle, we needed to euthanize. And I mean, the only way of how, when I was talking to, to vets were like, well, you have to drill a hole into a, her head and you make sure that you really hit the brain as quickly as possible. So, you know, she goes quickly and doesn't feel anything anymore. So it was a little bit traumatizing for all of us. I can tell you that, but um, yeah, because we had to find like, you know, a drill, uh, somewhere <laughs> it was yeah it was not a pleasant uh, thing that we we had to do them but it shows you a lot about resilience and also you know of how they work and how they yeah not die i guess that quickly so you're talking about the the idea of uh the sea turtle being attacked by dogs um or even by humans it makes me realize a question that uh, apologies if this is a very dumb question so we have experience with some terrestrial turtles, like the box turtle that can fully retract inside the shell. Is that not, is there any kind of retraction uh, defensive capability in sea turtles or can they partially do that or not at all or what? So this is a really good question. I don't think it's a dumb question at all because it's one of the most um, identifying features of sea turtles that they can not retract the limbs into the shell. So they can kind of pull the head in a little bit, like in the case of, for example, green turtles, um, but not really. So it's not, you know, like this typical image that you have where they just like disappear into their shell. They can't. So the reason of why that is, is first of all, they have their shell has become very streamlined in, in the course of evolution. So they're like super hydrodynamic, um, which also decreases the space inside of the shell. If you think about like these high domed tortoises, for example, that we have on land. And then the other thing is, is that the main locomotive uh, or like the main engine are the front flippers, right? So they have, you know, they, it's almost looks like, like an airplane, the way how they like 
kind of go through the water or like flying like birds that are kind of flapping, you know, their power strokes with both flippers. But that means their, um, their chest muscles have grown so large that they have taken up a lot more space than in other turtles. And that is also one of the reasons that they can't retract it into their shell anymore. And now in terms of just sort of the general temperament uh, of, of the sea turtle, um, do, do you find that like different sea turtle species or even individuals have different demeanors? Are some shyer around human divers or snorkelers, for example? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a difference between species. So olive ridleys and leatherbacks are seldomly faced, especially if we're talking about mass nesting turtles. So if you have solitary nesting turtles, they're a little bit more skittish. Um, but yeah, leatherbacks and olive ridleys are really kind of like, I don't care. Uh, so you can handle them while they're nesting. So they're in this like, you know, supposed to be nesting trance that really kind of, you know, they're only concentrating of dropping their eggs and, and, and anything that happens around them, they really don't seem to notice. But in the case of hawksbills and greens, both of those turtle species are super skittish. So it comes, you know, even when they come up, even when they're already dropping the eggs, which, you know, supposedly they're in the nesting trance, the protocols that we have in place usually means, okay, if you're not able to, you know, really carefully collect eggs or whatever, better don't touch them, let they do their thing. And then we're going to collect the data. So, you know, we don't disturb the actual egg laying process. And then of course, within individuals, um, when we were doing, especially the Olive Ridley sampling, I always felt that smaller turtles were way more feisty than like the big, big ones. Um, maybe it had something to do with, you know, being more agile because you were smaller. Uh, I don't know. It sometimes also had seemed to have something to do of how high the temperatures were. So, you know, if you grab a turtle that maybe has just woken up and hadn't had time to really go to the surface and sun bask a bit to really kind of wake up and get their metabolism going, um, they might be a little bit more sluggish than if you have one turtle that has been already, you know, absorbed all the heat energy and the muscles are all ready for action. And then they start fighting you when you have them on the boat. Now, I realize there's a lot to unpack with this question. And, and I think we've, we've touched on it a, a little bit, at least already in the conversation. But what are the biggest threats to sea turtles today? And, and, and what is the current state of turtle conservation? What are the most important things we, we are doing to help them and, and can do to help them? Yeah, so first up, I think we have to say very clearly that all seven sea turtle species are considered endangered in one shape or form. I mean, there's like, you know, the IUCN that is um, curating the red list of endangered species as having certain categories uh, and different sea turtle species and even different within the species, different populations have sometimes different statuses. But I think as a generalizing term, they are all somehow endangered um nowadays and then if we think about the threats it's just it's not just one i think it's pretty much the exact same ones that when we talk about our ocean in general it's exactly the same things that are also endangering sea turtles so of course the biggie is climate change so we already talked about temperatures that are super important to sea turtles and so rising temperatures are creating you know issues with the uh, yeah an overproduction of females but the other biggie is also um, sea level rise. So we have nesting habitat that is disappearing because sea levels are rising and nesting beaches are disappearing. Then the big category that is next is, of course, ocean pollution. And there we can talk about oil spills that are happening way too frequently. And it's not always that the press reports about it. Uh, we can talk about the not so visible pollution through fertilizers and pesticides that comes from our agriculture, uh, agricultural activities on land that lead to diseases such as fibropapilloma, which is kind of um, a virus disease that causes really crazy tumors in sea turtles. Um, then, of course, plastic pollution. So every single species of sea turtles has been documented to have ingested plastic already. Um, a lot of times when we have dead turtles, we cut them open they're just full of plastic. Interesting fact, the first ingestion of plastic in sea turtles was actually found in leatherbacks. So the first paper that was published in that was published in the 1980s. And then the same author actually went back to all records from like, I think the 60s and 70s to see for evidence if somebody else had been recording plastic. And they did find that even before that time, people had already found 
plastic in, in, in sea turtles, in leatherbacks specifically. And then the other thing, of course, is overexploitation. So in many, many, many developing countries in Asia, Africa, South America, Central America, um, people still take sea turtle eggs because they believe either they're better than chicken eggs or they believe it's a type of natural Viagra. So older men try to um, increase their sex drive uh, by, yeah, by, by eating sea turtle eggs. Uh, but there's also still a culture around consuming sea turtle meat, especially the meat of green turtles, which is, you know, dates back many, many centuries to sailors and other seafarers that uh, love taking turtles because they're just this amazing protein source and turtles don't need much. So they don't need much water. They don't need much foods, but you keep them alive. Sometimes you even tie them outside of the boat. And uh, when you need one, you just slaughter them and then you have fresh meats. And then um, the other one is the, in the exploitation range is the sea, sea turtle shell tribe, which is affecting um, especially hawksbill turtles. So tortoise shell, I think you might've seen the pattern. Um, yeah, it's for, for jewelry, for, 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 um, for glasses, for reading glasses and else, um, yeah, has also long history. And then of course the other biggie is um, overfishing. So industrial fishing um, just, doesn't just you know catch target species but has a incredible amount of bycatch so what we call incidental take so it's species that were not meant to be fished but end up in those nets or on those lines as well and since sea turtles like i said already need to breathe air um they're actually sometimes a lot of times not able to surface and drown in those nets and we, it's really, it's an overwhelming number of turtles that die every single year in fishing operations. And it is really sad, especially when you think about overexploitation in needs in turtle shell and also in, in, um, in the fishing lines is that, you know, there is a very low chance for babies to survive. But once you've reached a certain size as a sea turtle, there's really not that many natural predators. And since it takes such a long time for a sea turtle to reach sexual maturity, each individual is so valuable to the population. And it's exactly those individuals that die, you know, when you want to have meat, when you want to have turtle shell, or if you have bycatch. Now, when you mention the effects of, uh, of plastics on sea turtles, would the human activity that causes this primarily be the high volume use of, of single use plastics or other things too? Or uh, what do you think is the you know, the day-to-day -day human activity that contributes most to that in the ocean. I think there's a lot of misconception about how plastic, first of all, ends up in our ocean and how plastic waste is created. It is very overwhelming of how much tons of plastic we are having each year, and it's increasing exponentially. So in just 2015, which is already six years back, we were already producing between 400 and 500 million metric tons of, of, of plastic each year, which... A good 40% is mainly for food wrapping and packaging. And about 40 to 50% are produced only for single use, right? So you have this miracle product, plastic, that can last for hundreds of years and you're using it for the use of like literally seconds or minutes. And a lot of times, especially those single use plastics are first of all, not recyclable at all because they're too light in the way of how, you know, recycling is processed. But even if they were recyclable, the reality is that only about four to 9% of, of the plastic really gets recycled. So, you know, a lot of people feel good because it's like, hey, I recycle. I'm not the litter pack. Like, you know, I dispose of my trash responsibly. But the problem is most developing, uh, most developed countries are actually sending their plastic trash to developing countries. So the U.S., Europe, European countries, we're all sending our trash to Asia. Used to send it to China, but now it's going to Indonesia, to Malaysia, to other places, which have not a great waste management program. And, you know, since so little is really like, you know, recyclable, it will end up in our oceans anyways, right? So even you at home separated and you felt good about yourself because you did a good job, but in the end, it will end up in landfills that might not be so well managed. Even within the U.S., if you just think about, you know, hurricanes, so you have an open landfill, you know, the next hurricane that kind of goes through, what do you think is going to happen to your trash? You know, it's going to be 
ending up in the waterways and eventually it will also end up in the ocean. So it's not just, you know, cruise boats or, or container ships that are creating all the plastic trash or the people that visit the beaches and leave their trash behind. No, it's every single person in the world that is contributing to the issue. I, I want to make that very clear because that's always the easy way out but where people just think, well, I'm not part of the problem. We're all part of the problem. And I think the other problem is it's like the convenience. People are just so used to kind of rapid consumption of, of food and everything and beverages. And um, in the pandemic now, you know, just the amount of takeout that has been probably, um, yeah, perpetuated because, you know, everybody's at home and wants to still eat uh, something from a restaurant. And so the styrofoam containers, the plastic bottles, the plastic cups, the cu plastic cutlery, all of that needs to go somewhere, right? And uh, yeah, so usually it doesn't get recycled and it will somehow end up in our environment in one way or another. So that means the only thing that we can really do is, is really try to reduce our use of plastic as much as we can. And I'm not trying to say, you know, oh, we need all to be like completely plastic free because that is, it's a utopia that is not possible. I mean, my computer that I'm using to speak to you right now the, you know, certain things that are useful for my science, doctors that are using the syringe. It's just like there's certain advantages, you know, of plastic that I think are super important for us as a species as well. But do we really need to use plastic for like, um, you know, to drink out of a cup where we don't even need, uh, you know, a straw in the first place? If, if we're able-bodied people, we can just drink out of the cup. Or, you know, if you're getting takeout, um, and you have all your silverware at home, why do you need to get plastic cutlery, right? It's just, it's so easy. I get it because you don't have to wash it up. You just throw it out, but there is a price to it. You know, there's always a price and somebody has to pay the price. And a lot of times, unfortunately, it's the wildlife um, that is paying the price and not us. Is there anything else that you think would be really important to hit before we wrap up here? Very important. I don't know. I just, you know, want to motivate people to really understand that there is a certain degree that we have as uh, there's a certain degree of power that we have as consumer, right? So I do not want to try to fool you into believing that the consumers are the ones that are really, you know, having to carry all the responsibility for, for example, our plastic pollution. It's really the large companies that are creating most of our, our problem, but we can vote with our decision, like with our choices, right? So if, if you spend your money with a certain company, you're voting for that money quite literally. So I just think we need to be more conscious about how we're spending our money. And I just always try to convince people just to consume less, just buy less crap because it's just like, you know, I, I get it. Capitalism is trying to make you buy more and more and tries to, you know, make you believe that you need this newest thing, but it's, it's, you know, it's not true. It really isn't true. And I think we just need to be a lot more conscientious of of our consumer behavior and then we just you know become better consumers i think all right well christine thanks so much for chatting with us today and uh you know sharing all this great information about 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 sea turtles uh, uh I, I feel like i learned learned so much uh today about the about the the seven sea turtles uh, we still have uh, as well as their you know their their current plight uh so uh, I guess one thing to ask would be if anyone out there listening to this, if they want to follow you and your work online, uh, where can they go to do so? Where do you like to send people? Yeah, I'm pretty active on Instagram. So I'm sea turtle biologist. Very easy. Uh, if you guys want to check out my Instagram, I'm trying to create content about, you know, sea turtles and about plastic pollution and just giving ideas of, of, of what's going on out in the field where I am. And that's definitely one way. And yeah, if you guys want to support my work, um, there is an app called Milky Wire where you can become monthly supporters, I think starting at like about three or five dollars. So literally just like as if you would invite me to coffee each month. And that is a huge difference because that is pretty much how we sustain our conservation efforts, um, which is paying my guys that are patrolling the beaches, trying to keep the turtles safe from poachers and make sure that the babies have a good chance of, you know, having a good start in life. Yeah, I think that's probably the easiest way of connecting with me. Excellent. All right. Well, well, again, again, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us. This has been great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was fun nerding out about turtles. Yay.
All right. Thanks once more to Christine Figener for taking time out of her day to just chat with us about sea turtles and sea turtle conservation. Uh, This was a real blast. And if you would like to to follow her on social media, uh, these are a few of the places you can, and just in general on the internet, here are a few places you can go. On Instagram, uh, she is a sea turtle biologist, one word. Uh, on Facebook, it is C.F. Figener, that's F-I-G-G-E-N-E-R. And on Twitter, uh, she is Chris Figener, so that's uh, Chris, C-H-R-I-S-F-I-G-G-E-N-E-R. And you can also go to her website, which is seaturtlebiologist.com. And then the Coasts organization, uh, coasts.cr on, is the Instagram tag, and you can, uh, that one is also connected uh, to uh, uh, Dr. F- uh, Figener's uh, Facebook account. We're going to go ahead and close it out there, but if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed with core science and culture episodes publishing on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact episode on Wednesday, Listener Mail on Monday, and on Fridays we do a little Little weird house cinema that's our time to set the science aside and just focus on a weird movie huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.